welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is... Jamie. Jamie Jackson. (laughs) This is our final episode, both for this, our third season, and to the series as a whole. The time has arrived to move on to new projects. It all started in the spring of 2020, just as COVID-19 and lockdown took a firm hold on the nation. I asked Jamie if I could interview him about the Great Siege of Malta, which resulted in our episode 13, The Siege of Fort St Elmo. And 90-plus episodes later, and three years later, here we are. And five heart bypasses, I might add, Tom. (laughs) Yes. Uh, If you've been following us, you'll know that we have talked about many periods of history. We've had thematic discussions from famous last stands to desperate retreats, from civil wars to cavalry charges. We have interviewed others and we have taken a close look at specific moments in history. The Spanish Armada, the Battle of Hastings, the true founding of America and much more. I hope you've enjoyed what we've put out. We've really enjoyed making them. And here's a commercial break. If you have any questions on the podcast or are interested in making your own show, please contact me through our website or at tomoffice at tomtom.co.uk. So, we will leave our website up where you can listen to all our episodes and I will also put all the remaining episodes on our Bloody Violent History YouTube channel. Before we sign off, Jamie and I are going to have a final chat about some of our favourite episodes from this season and then from the show as a whole. So, Jamie, why don't you start the ball rolling What have you most enjoyed talking about this year? I thought we'd start with Spy Plane, which was a bloody bite, I seem to remember. It was bloody bite number 17. Yeah, me on my own. And it's an important one because, because of the different conflicts, particularly Ukraine and what's going on in the Middle East at the moment, the importance of spy planes, of reconnaissance platforms, intelligence, uh, surveillance, target acquisition, uh, reconnaissance platforms is is vital. And it's really to do with whether they still have a role. And given that the Royal Air Force has just sent out Shadow R1, Beechcraft, King Air, reconnaissance aircraft uh, to the Middle East, it shows that there is still a role. And those aircraft are actually also used by the Israeli Air Force 100 Squadron, the Flying Camels, uh, electro-optic devices. And they are critical for spotting uh, Hamas sites, for spotting uh, tunnel entrances, for spotting where hostages might be kept. So, So reconnaissance platforms are still important. But there is this evolution, certainly in contested airspace, towards drones. And we've done drone uh, podcasts as well. And if you look at where the United States is going with the RQ-180 drone, for example, an enormous drone, high altitude, some say it's got a 172-foot wingspan, no photographs of it, of course. And that plane, that drone, is really going to supersede, take over from the famous U-2. 
And given that people like Rudolf Anderson were killed during the Cuban Missile Crisis flying a U-2, there is this move towards unmanned platforms, uh, platforms that can actually do their own processing on board, platforms that can persist at high altitude and, and stay aloft and, and not put their crews in danger. So there is that evolution. There is that move towards new technology and the future. But there'll be certain situations where spy planes are still required. There we have it. So spy planes is episode 79 and our drone episode is episode 62. One of my favourite episodes this year has been the interview I had with with Hugh MacDonald Buchanan on the Battle of Waterloo. I know we've covered, or I know it's been covered as a subject by many people over over the years, but it's still a very fascinating uh, battle. And we had a number of battles we discussed in the show, which were really culminating battles. So that the, the battle at the end of a series that ends the war, ends that period of conflict as it did with Waterloo. Hugh uh, was a really brilliant person to talk to. He, he takes tours to the battlefield site, so he's very used to Q&Aing and, and, and being sort of receptive to having a conversation rather than just, just talking about the subject. And we've also recently had the Napoleon movie, Ridley Scott's movie, come out. Uh, I went to see it a week ago. I hear a lot of people have been champing at how inaccurate it is and what a disaster it is as a historical movie. But I, I think actually it's quite enjoyable and I think they're sort of missing the point. It's really a, a Napoleon and Josephine movie and, and everything else is sort of strapped around it. Can I just add, Tom, here that um, Josephine in real life had totally blackened teeth because she was brought up in the Caribbean chewing on uh, sugar <laughs> cane and her teeth were completely black. There's um, a warning for you, children. Stop <laughs> chewing on your sugar cane. There you go. Or brush your teeth. And I have to say the Napoleon movie today has got to be better than uh, uh, the Waterloo movie where Christopher Plummer played an excellent uh, Duke of Wellington, but I think it was Rod Steiger. Oh, Rod Steiger. I've never uh, seen such he, a bad performance was, in my life. He was great, wasn't he? Do you remember? Tots. The mud, the mud. <laughs> The mud. Well, I think if you want, if you if you experience this current Napoleon, he I think at one point, well, he does at one point in Waterloo, he gets on a horse and charges into battle. So, so that's even more unrealistic. But um, but it does. I mean, it was one of those battles. It was a one-day battle. It was the end of the Napoleonic Wars, effectively, and the end of what some people considered the First World War. And it was this one-day conflict where. Tens of thousands of people were casualties. So even though they were fighting with old kit, as we would think of today, the scale of destruction was appalling. And Napoleon was fighting his piles that particular day as well. So, um... Now, stop lowering the tone of my, my episodes <laughs> by mentioning his medical condition. You know, I can see you're sitting on your inner tube. But even so, Waterloo, episode... 69. Okay, so Jamie, your next one is Civil War. I think Civil War is an important one. It was part of our uh, our trio, really, that, that covered 
upheaval, and that included despots and insurgents. And perhaps we should have included massacre later on, because all these things are so mutiny. Even well, that as well. But 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 you know, what really came across from all these areas of upheaval, and particularly with civil war at its centre, was the the, the scale of violence. The, the fact that there's no way to go in a civil war. You know, you're fighting for the soul of a nation. It's not just an invasion. It is it is the, the dynamic that's going on within a country. And that's when you get the massacre. That's when you have one side believing that they represent good and the other side represents evil. And the terrible scars of, you know, families fighting against families, friends on opposite sides, villages, towns, cities... Yes, there's there's absolutely no escape in 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 civil war, and you know we're we're going to put in the clip of of Frederick Forsyth's uh, autobiography or memoir, The Outsider, and he, he makes the point: it, it's the children that suffer, and it really is. And and uh, you know, as you know, Tom, every time I hear that clip, I end up with my head in my hands. It, it 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 is so moving, and it's it's such a powerful bit of writing. And and Freddie captures it: uh, what civil war is about. That's the one I really recommend. Civil War, episode eighty. And always the low moan as they cried in pain. And one image above all, on the grass field outside the window of my hut. I was tapping away at my typewriter with the window wide open. It was late summer, 1969, and the air was balmy. I almost missed the low sound above the clatter of the keys. Then I heard it and went to the window. She was standing on the grass outside, a scrap of a girl of seven or eight, stick-thin, in a flimsy cotton shift stained with dirt. In her left hand she held the hand of her baby brother, stark naked, listless eyes, bulbous belly. She stared up at me and I down at her. She raised her right hand to her mouth and made the universal sign that means, I'm hungry, please give me food. Then she held up her hand towards the window and her lips moved with no sound. I looked down at the tiny pink-palmed hand, but I had no food. Foolishly, I tried to explain, I'm sorry, really sorry, but I have no food. I had no Igbo, she no English, but it did not matter. She understood. Slowly, her outstretched arms sank back to her side. She did not spit, she did not shout. She just nodded in silent understanding. The white man in the window would do nothing for her or her brother. In a long life, I have never seen such resignation, such towering dignity as in that wasted form as she turned away. All last hope gone. Together, the two little forms walked away across the field to the tree line. In the forest, she would find a shady tree, sit at its foot, and wait to die. And she would hold on to her kid brother like a good sister all the way. One of the episodes that I enjoyed from this year was the one we did on mobsters, which is episode 91. I I've always liked the sort of mobster story, whether it's Mario Puzo's The Godfather or Elmore Leonard, James Elroy, those American crime. Fantastic characters, 
the mafia bosses, the families, the linking of the mafia with the political and legal um, systems in America and how it's all, everything's corrupt and goes all the way up to the president. And it, it makes for fascinating stories. But the point is the reality, the actuality of the world of mobsters and organised crime is so much worse and there's nothing glamorous about it and it's brutal. It leads to poverty, the control of the poor and insidious corruption. They're held up as these Robin Hood characters, but then you get people like Escobar blowing up aircraft with hundreds of passengers on board. You have Italian mobsters who are blowing up bars and cafes in order to, to distract the police and investigations. And uh, so they are not these hero figures. They are just profoundly evil characters. And uh, so Mobster was a great favourite of mine as well, actually. Yeah. And there's, there's a doubling down of violence every time a particular organised crime group gets booted out of a, an area. They get booted out by someone who's worse and prepared to do more hideous uh, violence on each other and on the people around them. So that's Mobster episode 91. Jamie, now we're on to one of your bloody objects, Disastrous Expeditions, number 17 of 100 Bloody Objects. Yes, I brought this in simply because I wanted to talk about cannibalism. <laughs> but I think Disastrous Expeditions was a useful one because it shows this sort of human spirit to, to this, this quest to explore, to, to venture into the unknown. So we covered everything from the, the earliest aviators to uh, those who went on those Antarctic expeditions, to those who tried to find the Northwest Passage. So I, I, I just thought it was a, a useful one to explore and that it still goes on today, that people will always find a way to circumnavigate the globe, whether it's in a, a microlight or a balloon or anything else. Well, normally at this point I'd sing the Flanders and Swan song about cannibals, but I'm going to spare Jamie because he really doesn't like me to do this. Um, but do you think, Jamie, that the Brits or maybe even the English have a particular enthusiasm for uh, expeditions that quite often end well, in disaster? I, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, I think the, 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 the English amateur was definitely part of it. You know, that, that you'd end up going across the the uh, Antarctic in a tweed suit sort of thing. And I love the story of the uh, SOE man in North Africa during the Second World War who used to wander around, literally, in a, in a, in a tweed, tweed suit. And uh, he, because he said, well, the, the, the locals, the locals recognise me. So, so there's that aspect. And also, I suppose, because of the British Empire and the reach of the British Empire, that there were all these areas that still needed to be discovered, uncovered, catalogued and researched. So, so there was that sort of travel lust that, that that went on. And so you got all these eccentrics. And I think that exploration was always a way for British eccentrics to to go off overseas and perhaps escape the the sort of structures 
uh, and constraints of, of British society at the time. Yeah, and, and evangelicals as well, heading off into the um, African uh, Oh, well, yes, you, you always got people like Livingston going off on, on various expeditions. And, and so many of these people sort of disappeared for years and were then discovered. <laughs> Some of them partially eaten, of course. At the end of the garden in a garden shed. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Um, so that's Disastrous Expeditions, number 17 of 100 Bloody Objects and episode 76 in our show. I had another interview with Hugh MacDonald Buchanan, which I thoroughly enjoyed, which was about the Dambusters raid. This year we had the 80th anniversary of that extraordinary bomber raid on the German dams in the Second World War. The thing was, it was one of so many raids that Bomber Command had to execute over the six years of the war. A remarkable skill was required in, in executing it, and it appealed in the press and so on afterwards to the nation as, as this as sort of embodiment of courage and dedication, the, the we-will-never-surrender mindset. And it's, it, it's inspiring, and I, I'm going to uh, play a clip from Guy Gibson's autobiography, which was published just before he was then killed. He won, of course, the Victoria Cross on this uh, raid and he thoroughly deserved it, guiding his men, having dropped his own bombs, going round and round and guiding his other aeroplanes into the target and attracting the flak from German anti-aircraft guns so that they had a better chance of hitting their target. Many minutes later I told Mickey to attack. He seemed quite confident and we ran in beside him and a little in front. As we turned, Trevor did his best to get those gunners as he had promised. Bob Hay, Mickey's bomb aimer did a good job, and his mind dropped in exactly the right place. There was again a gigantic explosion as the whole surface of the lake shook, then spewed forth its cascade of white water. Mickey was all right, he got through, but he had been hit several times, and one wing tank lost all its petrol. I could see the vicious tracer from his rear gunner giving one gun position a hail of bullets as he swept over. Then he called up, OK, attack completed. I also think it's important to stress the practical dimensions of it, the the, the after effects, because people have always said, "Oh, the it, it you know the dams were repaired, the area was repaired, it didn't hold up the Germans long term, all of this." But actually, if you if you analyse it and you put it in the context of the bombing raids across Germany, it did actually pull a lot of the uh, workmen away, a lot of the concrete production yeah. away from from building the Atlantic Wall. So it did diminish the defences on the Normandy beaches, for example, and allowed us to to get a foothold foothold in France. So I I, I think there are many aspects of it. Um, that were important long term. And the skill was just astonishing. I mean, the flying at 60 feet in these massive, if anyone's ever seen a Lancaster bomber in real life, it's an enormous thing with a 100-foot wingspan. Yeah, I mean, the bravery of the men involved just cannot be overstated. It was phenomenal. So that was the Dambuster Raid, episode 77. Throughout the show, we've been doing it for three years now, there have been a number of episodes which have really meant uh, a lot to us. They've all meant a lot to us, but some have really meant more. 
I suppose. Um, and one that you pointed out to me earlier is 20th Century Heroines, episode 11. Yes, that meant a, a huge amount to me. And I think it's so important that these incredible women are remembered for what they did. And they represented a generation that had backbone and belief and a sense of duty and patriotism and uh, just and the courage involved you know whether you're talking about Violet Zabo or Odette Churchill or one that I bumped into occasionally Nancy Wake who had been an extraordinary SOE agent and the stories of her running up to a, a car full of Gestapo men going, uh, aren't you going to give me a lift back to my apartment? This was down in the south of France. Um, and they did give her a lift back to her apartment. And, and she was just one of these people who, who just had this extraordinary courage. And self-belief. Mm. And self-belief. And she, she managed to chat up a German on a train going down to Marseille. And she knew there would be barriers and checkpoints and everything at the other end. So she chatted him up. And by the time they got to Marseille, she, she got him to carry her suitcase full of detonators and explosives <laughs> through the checkpoints. So they were amazing. And I... I Remember that uh, we ended it with me talking about Vera Lynn because she was another great heroine. And I was very fortunate to have met her a few times. And, and they were just a great generation. So I think it's so important that they are remembered and they are lauded um, for what they did. Uh, we owe them so much. I went to the Oldie Magazine Awards Lunch about 10 days ago and there was a marvellous lady called Patricia Outram, 100 years old, and she'd been, uh, she hadn't been in France, but she'd been an, an agent, particularly as she was a German speaker. So she spent a lot of time on radios for the naval section, listening in and helping uh, people make plans and discover what was going on. And what a modest, charming brilliant woman, 100 years old, Patricia Outram. And I just take my hat off to all of them. That was Heroines of the 20th Century, episode 11. So going over all of them, I found uh, one of the early ones that we did was very appealing to me, and that was Cavalry Charge. I was never actually in a cavalry charge, but I was in a cavalry regiment, so I suppose it speaks slightly to my own interest. But the cavalry, as we discovered when we were looking into this, their fortunes wax and wane over the centuries, depending on what other types of weaponry are available or tactics that sometimes can bring them to a shuddering halt, or they themselves get it horribly wrong because they're not very well trained or commanded and then they tend to charge into battle and you never see them again. There is a, a romance to the cavalry charge in war, but the reality of being charged by a, a hundred heavy horses with lances or swords or whatever would be a, a terrifying and gruesome uh, experience, effectively a punch in the face for the infantry trying to hold a line or not break through in the middle. But the difficulty was always that they were expensive. You have to have a great commander like Frederick the Great, for instance, with his general Siderlitz to be able to control 
the cavalry in a battlefield situation. And they had years of practice to get it right as well. And I liked the fact that Seidelitz, when he was ready to charge, he would throw his clay pipe away, and that was the signal for the men to draw swords and charge into battle. But it is extraordinary, the courage of the horses involved and the, and the casualties they took, as well as the men. But, but I just remember the descriptions of the battlefield of Waterloo littered with, with, with dead horses, dead and dying horses. And I, I, I occasionally um, see Bruff Scott at the Animal War Memorial, and, and he, of course, is the owner of his grandfather's um, horses, Dick and Medal, because that horse, General Seeley's horse, was warrior, and that became Warhorse, and he was the most amazing animal. And, and we mention him in the cavalry charge uh, podcast and and he liked to fight didn't he, he liked to fight he he just had a, a a nose for it and an instinct for it and i think that you have to and he was a natural leader i mean that horse was always uh, at the forefront of of every charge and every other horse followed him you just get these you get these leaders just as you get human leaders you get equine leaders as well and warrior was was there yeah, and, and nowadays, of course, cavalry regiments have tanks, light tanks, heavy tanks, um, or even helicopters. If you're Colonel Kilgore in uh, Apocalypse Now, but most cavalry officers, given the chance, would probably like to take part in a, a cavalry charge on horseback. Whether they'd actually enjoy the experience at the time and afterwards would be another thing. But anyway, that's Cavalry Charge Episode 2, an early one. So, Jamie, we're going to stay with animals for the time being, and your one of your favourites is the True Dogs of War, which is number three of our 100 bloody objects, the Irish Terrier. Well, I had to bring them back in <laughs> because they played such an extraordinary role, and they were in the trenches in the Western Front, amazing stories of one who got himself onto a ship at Southampton and found his master out in France and survived. Another one, Paddy, who was with a New Zealand regiment who led the charges across no man's land in Gallipoli and barked at the Turkish soldiers down in their trenches. And again, he survived and lived till 16 and a half and was brought over to the Western Front, was based there, lived in Kent after the war. And when he died, the old lady looking after him sent his collar and disc back to the New Zealand Regiment in Auckland, and it still hangs in their museum. So they were the most extraordinary. All the dogs in the trenches, collies as well, uh, did amazing things. And the only thing that the Irish Terriers weren't good at, according to Colonel Richardson, who, who set up the dog training school, was they, they weren't so good at taking messages because they, they stopped to talk to everyone. Uh, they, they thought everyone was a friend, uh, old, new or imagined. A bit like you then, Jim. <laughs> I can yeah, see why just, you like them. Just shallow. Can't get him to go in a straight line. <laughs> but 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 it, it is worth mentioning the animals in war, and and I recommend that anyone who comes to London goes to the Animals in War Memorial in Park Lane. They are 
they are worth remembering and they must be remembered. And of course, there is an Irish terrier face peeking from the wall on the on the war memorial. So uh, pay your respects. True Dogs of War. That's episode eight. I had the privilege of interviewing uh, three different people about IEDs, that is the improvised explosive device. Uh, the first one was a fellow called Harry Parker, who was blown up by an IED when he was serving in the army. The second was a doctor called Tom Carroll, who was a surgeon in Afghanistan on two tours. And the third part of the IED episodes was an interview with Simon Conway, who works for Halo, the um, anti-mine trust, and, and, and it's a terrific listen. But the one I wanted to just mention specifically was the second episode, the interview with Dr. Tom Carroll, because he did these two tours in Afghanistan in eight, uh, 2008, nine and 2012, and it comes across from the conversation, the amazing training that they had here before they went out, the, the extensive and intensive training they underwent. But once deployed, they were straight in, day in, day out, dealing with these young men and women who were, they would see in the mess hall in the morning and then bodies would come back in the afternoon. Um, and I think it, it, it was a terrific strain on all of those medics um, helping these young people literally in some cases get back on their feet saving their lives under incredible circumstances and I just I think the relentless nature of dealing with that uh, when I, we spoke when I spoke with Harry Parker about you know when he was blown up in some respects that was a one-off event he had to deal with whereas Tom Carroll had to see this every day the terrible injuries that these people suffered from when they were blown up by an improvised explosive device terrible infections and ragged wounds and even actually modern uh, rifle fire uh, the modern high energy rounds from a rifle would rip through a body and circle around a body and do all sorts of extraordinary damage that you couldn't necessarily see straight away so I, I'd just like to take my uh, hat off to Dr Tom Carroll and, and uh, recognise him for the very brave man that he is. And, and that interview Tom was so profoundly moving I, I really recommend it. It, it it's it's just the most visceral and heartfelt commentary on on what it's like from the doctor's point of view from the the medic medical team's point of view and it really is very profound and and very powerful and 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 affecting and uh, it, it is quite extraordinary but i but i i want to tell you a quick story about harry parker who's an old friend of mine yeah and uh, as you know tom i'm blind so i have a white stick and i was walking along king's road one day and I heard, Jamie, Jamie. And I said, who's that? He said, it's Harry Parker. And I said, Harry, how long have you watched me doing battle, getting around this building? He went, oh, quite a while. Let's, let's go and grab, grab coffee. So we were walking along, and me with my white cane, Harry with his prosthetic limbs. He said, Jamie, if you, 
if you could see, you'd see that everyone was stopping, was just staring at us. And I said, Harry, if you think about it, we are the ultimate car crash. People are trying to work out what the hell happened there. <laughs> I thought you said you were going to start holding out a tin. <laughs> yeah, so I don't pay, pay the harmonica. But uh, yeah, Harry's, Harry's a brilliant guy. He's yeah. uh, just fantastic and uh, dealt with his injuries just, just amazingly. And he's written a couple of very interesting books. Anatomy of a Soldier is... I, I don't want to say much about it because I think you should just read it. It's very interestingly told and uh, an extraordinary viewpoint. Uh, and the and more recent book that he's written is called Hybrid Humans. Right, onwards. Uh, Jamie, from the whole pantheon of Bloody Violent History, the show... You also selected pirates, poirates. Did I? You did. <laughs> you, I think. Yeah, see, I, I, it's, I, it's the bandana that you wear around your head, <laughs> and the parrot the, on your the shoulder that gives it away. On my shoulder. I, I, I wanted to put this in because we, we again, it was an, another trio uh, we, uh, under under the term uh, banditry, which covered pirates, outlaws, and highwaymen. And it was really to show the connections. And, and for me, the two things that run in parallel through banditry, one is it, it functions, it thrives in areas, either at sea or on land, where the law doesn't reach, you know, where, where they are a law unto themselves. And secondly, you tend to have well-known trade routes. So at sea, it's whether it's the North, coast of Africa, for example, that was always vulnerable to being attacked, whether by Corsairs or by the Knights of St. John, for example. Uh, on land, highwaymen tend to gather around areas, urbanised areas. So we, we started in biblical times with the, with the road to Jericho, for example, and the story of the Good Samaritan. And around London later on, particularly in the 18th century, the highwaymen gathered because you know, you always got the stagecoach going down you know, through the heathland to, towards London. And it was only later on when you started getting turnpikes, you started getting the constabulary, you started getting the Enclosure Act, you got the stagecoach passengers and those riding shotgun. Uh, with blunderbusses, the, you, you started getting better weaponry, better response to highwaymen, and they couldn't afford to be injured. So you can see how banditry thrived. And you, with outlaws, for example, in the United States, again, it was the spread of urbanization, the, the spread of the gold rush, the spread of stagecoaches, of, uh, of railways that, that, that could be held up. And, and so whether it's the Australian outback or the Wild West of America or in the heathland to, coming towards London, you know, these outlaws, these highwaymen thrived. And, and the, the, over time, there's been this sort of layer of, of romance put upon them but but they probably don't deserve it like mobsters you know they are so often just psychopaths and common criminals and uh, did the most heinous and appalling things 
it is an interesting way to observe how it's down to governments to really get a grip of their countries and by building roads and getting policemen or, or soldiers to police them. Uh, and, and ultimately, the sea is, is the last uh, place that the bandits can end up. And once you've cleared them from the sea, then you, you, you've pretty much got the job done. But you need a nation with a, a world-beating navy, like the British Navy, um, until you know, the middle of last century and up until today, at least, the US Navy. And you see that, that once you get a convoy system coming into place in the Gulf, you know, th- and, until that point, you started getting all the Somali pirates operating and, and, and taking out individual ships. So you get the Iranians um, sending drones against individual ships. You know, but, but once you have a, a, a powerful navy, in the same way that the U.S. Navy today is bringing down uh, you know, missiles and drones being sent by Houthi rebels in Yemen you know, towards Israel. So it, it does take a powerful navy to clear the sea lanes to, to ensure that there can be the usual traffic, the usual commerce going on. Rot, rot. Avast, lazy sea dog. Right, my last one from the overall show is the copy of the speech by Sir Arthur Harris, who was in charge of Bomber Command from 1942 to 1945, that he gave to his old lags, as he called them, his men, at their re- reunion in 1977. And I, I just think it's worth a listen. It's remarkable that at the age of 85, he's got such a, a clarity of mind and such a, a remarkable sense of humour. Um, he always had a good sense of humour, but he, he was still able to tell it, um, even into old age. And the point is really to be made that war is brutal. There's nothing glamorous about it. And to win it, you need to be professional and you need to be able to punch where it hurts and destroy the other person, the enemy, as fast and effectively as you can. And the final thing that comes across in that episode, in that speech, is the, is the love that the crews had for him. You can hear it at the end when, when they sing for He's a Jolly Good Fellow. Yeah, that's very moving. It's yeah. quite extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, it's, you can't uh, enamour yourself to the people who, are un, uh, you know, who, who you command. They have to respect you and then they will grow to love you. That's right. And like 20th century heroines, he represented that period of history, that, that, that generation who did have backbone, who had that sense of duty, who were committed. And it doesn't always make you popular. It doesn't always make you understood by later generations. But it was required at the time. And my God, he stepped up when we needed him. Well, I hope I've told you enough about your share in the air war and the naval war and in the land war. And nobody can take that away from you because I say it's all from the horse's mouth, from the leading Germans, the leading Americans and the leading British. Even Lord Allenbrook, the head of the army, who was no friend of the Air Force, always making inordinate demands on what was what we should do for them, 
He admitted in his private diaries, which were published after the war by Sir Arthur Brown, he referred to the brilliant skill of the bombers and the outstanding assistance they gave to the army during the invasion. Well, when you consider that our invasion of France consisted of 37 divisions large, with a large content of green and inexperienced troops and the jointly experience in the first war, the soldiers always said, well, if you want any chance of success in the attack, you must be two to one advantage in numbers and material over the enemy. Those 37 divisions chased 60 German divisions clean across Europe from the Atlantic to the Elbe, totally destroyed the German army of half a million men, the Seventh Army, captured tens of thousands of prisoners, all their equipment, and beat them down to unconditional surrender at Lundberg Heath. And that was largely due to two things. The Germans' lack of anti-tank defenses and the complete, not air superiority, but absolute air supremacy of our fellows over on the continent, thanks to the fact that the bombers had forced the German Air Force to expend nearly all its effort on a failed attempt to defend their own country. Thank you for listening to me. And thank you. So that is three from this year, each and three each from the show as a whole. Jamie loves PSs to every episode, so I'm going to grant him a PS now. Thank you, Tom. What is your PS? (laughs) What I want to do is, because we've done bloody objects in in all our uh, seasons... I wanted to end with a bloody object that I haven't mentioned before. And it's a grim one, Tom, but it's a grim one for a reason. And today's object is the six tons of gold from the gold dental fillings uh, brought and deposited in the Reichbank uh, between 1942 and 1944. And those were the six tons of gold dental fillings brought from Auschwitz. And the reason I want to mention it is because, to me, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of what happens when nations, when leaders do not stand up to tyranny, when they refuse to understand what is at stake. That it's a symbol of what happens when you have leaders around the world who think that the only answer is to cut a deal, to compromise. Because if you go down that route, you end up with a prime minister with a piece of paper saying peace in our time. You end up with Vichy France. You end up with people standing back while Putin invades Ukraine. And sometimes you have to stand up and say, there is no compromise. You cannot cut a deal. You have to stand up. And so I'm afraid I go against the Kissinger view of 
real politique, the idea of, of realist international relations. Sometimes there is good and evil, right and wrong. And if you don't stand up for what you believe, if you don't stand up for what is right, then the other side, the tyrants, the despots will prevail. And so that's why my bloody object is those six tons of gold. And I think people should reflect on that, dwell on it, and remember what is at stake, and it's usually our freedom. Well said, Jamie. Well, my PS is really just an acknowledgement of how all this started, because COVID kicked off at the beginning of 2020, and I was fiddling around with tape recorders and deciding whether or not to make a podcast. And so I'd been uh, interviewing a few people just to see how it went, I asked Jamie if he would uh, agree to let me interview him on a subject which he'd written a novel about. Blood Rock, that one. Yeah, Blood Rock, which is set in Malta at the time of the Great Siege of Malta. And so we recorded a slightly fuzzy episode uh, on a basic tape recorder about the siege of Fort St Elmo, which is right on the tip of where Valletta is today in Malta. And... After that, Jamie said to me, why don't we do some more? And 90-plus episodes, we're still at it. Yeah, well, I think I said it must be one up on your doing a podcast on marmalade, which I think had been your previous one. My marmalade experiment, <laughs> very very sticky. Anyway, I, I, I think it's been uh, a great opportunity for me to uh, dig into all sorts of subjects that I didn't know anything about and really to hopefully get a few of you out there uh, thinking about some of these things you didn't know about and reading up on them yourselves, learning more about them yourselves. I think that's really what it's about, Tom. I mean, if, 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 if we can sort of put themes into people's heads, then people can read a, around the subject. And that's really what it's about. It's about the long reach of history. It's not about compartmentalising history because it's taught in such a fragmented way these days. It's about people thinking about the entire subject and looking at how history flows, how history flows through nations, how history flows through us all. And and because if you don't understand the confluence of events, if you don't understand the, the, the currents of history, then you are never going to be able to interpret what is happening today or what will happen in the future. So we may well have misquoted or misinterpreted Mark Twain's history doesn't repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes. But the sentiment, I think, is correct. Well, folks, I guess that's it. We've enjoyed ourselves and you've been great. And you've been great too, Jamie. Uh, Thank you, Tom. And we might be back one day. We may well be back. You know, how many times did Arnie come back? (laughs) (laughs) I lied. So it goes. Thank you for listening to Bloody Violent History. You can send us emails on talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com and you can check out all episodes on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. That's it. That's it, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Bye.